welcome to From the Frontline. This evening we're going to be discussing learning from warfare in history. Thanks, Dr. Hammond, for having me again, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say to us this evening. Well, freedom is never free. Uh, it must be often fought for and defended with real force and mm. sacrifice, so there's a lot we can learn from warfare. Mm. And there's been a lot uh, to think about as believers, especially in today's world with everything happening in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we need to be thoughtful in these issues of, should we just get up and say, yeah, let's go to war with Russia? Or how, how do we actually think about these things? And I think there's a lot we can actually learn. Last week we looked at biblical examples. Now we want to look at historical examples. Um, so, Dr. Hammond, which wars actually brought about freedom and security in history? Well, a minority. I mean, let's face it, most mm -hmm. wars made things worse, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but looking at things historically, we can see some wars which were waged um, that were defensive against aggressors, which had the sincere purpose of defending innocence and restraining uh, evil. Um, and a lot of the freedoms and both political and religious freedoms we have today and often take for granted actually war won through wars which were approved of by the churches of those days. Hmm. So um, to take the Battle of Tours, for example, if the people of Europe had not resisted the Islamic invasions of the Moors and the Turks, then Europe would have been conquered and what today is called Europe could have easily been Arabia. Hmm. Islam would have replaced Christianity and the missionary sending base from where the faith was communicated to us, Europe, would have been snuffed out as far as any kind of Christian base at all goes. And recent history would be completely unrecognizable had not Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, not rallied the fighting men of Europe on the plains of Poitiers in the Battle of Tours, just south of Paris. And it was the year 732 AD, a century after the death of Muhammad, and Muslim jihadists had massacred, looted, pillaged their way across the whole of the Middle East and North Africa, which used to be Christian strongholds, by the way. Hmm. And they had conquered Spain. They'd crossed the Pyrenees Mountains. They were threatening the heartland of Europe. They were just south of Paris. They were heading into getting in the heartland of Europe. Yet, by God's grace, Charles Martel's courageous Christian warriors stood firm. They, they formed a shield wall and they resisted six furious charges of the Muslim cavalry, which had been pretty unbeatable up to then. Hmm. And they routed them and they sent them fleeing back across the Pyrenees Mountains. And uh, it was a turning point, a major watershed in history, 732 AD. And had the leader of the Franks and every man able to bear arms failed to repulse the Muslim invaders that day, who greatly outnumbered them, by the way. Europe could have become Arabia. There'd have been no Christian Europe into which the Reformation could be born and from which the great missionary initiatives could have been launched. So uh, the Battle of Tours is just one example hmm. of a battle which actually changed history for the good and uh, uh, preserved faith and freedom. Hmm. And so this was before the time of the Crusades then, by several hundred years before the Crusades happened. And this was a defensive battle against the Muslim expansion or the expansion of Islam. Now, Islam was really expanding rapidly after the time of Muhammad. It went from what? Just in Saudi to where did, what did the expansion of Islam actually look well, like? Well, about time? the first place they conquered was Syria and, and uh, Jerusalem and Egypt and the whole of North Africa and mm. into the Middle East and, and what had been called Babylon, what today we'd call Iraq, uh, into Persia and all the way up into uh, what today is Tur called Turkey, what then was the mm. Byzantine Empire. But they went all the way across what today we'd call Libya and Tunisia and Algeria and, and Morocco and into 
uh, across uh, the Straits of Gibraltar into Spain mm. and conquered Spain, Portugal. So, you know, just extraordinary expansion of Islam. They conquered actually something like 50% of all the Christians in the world yeah. were brought under Islam in mm. just a century after the death of Muhammad. So that kind of rapid expansion just unprecedented. And in some ways you can look at it as a judgment of God upon a weak and compromising church, which had not fulfilled the Great Commission, which mm. had not been zealous in evangelizing their neighbors, and uh, which had become so weak in the case of the Byzantine Empire that they were depending on Arab mercenaries to protect them from Arab Muslims. Mm. And, uh, you know, on many a key battle, they, the army just changed sides, and all that weaponry and training was just not only lost, but now on the other side. So mm. the Byzantine Empire in particular suffered terribly uh, from from the jihadists and from Muslim expansion. But in a real sense, um, it's not just um, a military victory. It was a victory because the Muslims had zeal and the Christians at that stage obviously did not have much evangelistic zeal. Hmm. So in many ways, you could just see it as a judgment. And that's the way many Christians at the time saw it. This is a judgment of God upon a wicked, compromising church that had lost its missionary vision. Hmm. And that was largely, I mean, what we look at sort of around the Mediterranean Sea today, that was the Roman Empire, but that was also where the expansion of Christianity had gone. So all those North African countries where Israel is, all those Southern European countries, I mean, that was sort of the heart of the Christian world was right there, and they were just sweeping across it and conquering these nations. Yes, so just think of some of the greatest churches in the early church. Well, you've got to think of Antioch and Alexandria, of course, and Jerusalem, and those became Muslim countries. Mm. And uh, you think of some of the greatest names in early church history, Athanasius, uh, Irenaeus, mm. Cyprian, Oregon, Tertullian, uh, Augustine, all North Africans. Hmm. And so, I mean, most people would be uh, uh, quite staggered to just realize how much was lost by the hmm. church having allowed themselves to backslide. And, and doubtless they thought, you know, we're so powerful and who could threaten us? I mean, Roman Empire and all this great history. And the Roman Empire has even become Christian. So, hmm. you know, uh, we're unbeatable. And, uh, well, you know, some Bedouins and Arabs from the desert with their camels and horses uh, managed to defeat them. And uh, that must have been a major shock to them. But it just shows, you know, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. You, you need a strong heart and faith. Of course, economics plays a part. But the spiritual dynamics of a country is the most important of all. Mm. And uh, the military's got its place. But, you know, the military alone cannot protect you if mm. your heart and soul has been rotten. Mm. And so I guess the question would be, at that point, was the church and sort of the Roman Empire sort of combined into one? Because I know at some point, sort of the church and the it became the Roman, not the Roman Catholic Empire, but you kind of had this merging of the church and the governmental power. Was it that way at that time in history as well? It was, particularly the Byzantine Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire was very, very much where, where you could barely distinguish between the uh, church and state in many ways. They were so mm. merged. And, and of course, the Western Roman Empire as well. Uh, they got to such a point where Constantine officially became Christian. Christianity went from being a persecuted religion, strong and dynamic, where to become a Christian you had to be willing to suffer and even die for Christ. So you can be sure you had no nominalism in those churches. Hmm. And it became not only safe and legal and peaceful to be a Christian, but soon became favored and the empire hmm. soon favored the Christians. Now. And now it was, in fact, it'll advance your career in the empire hmm. if you become a Christian. So, so the church started to be flooded with people who were 
not even converted mm. uh, in a real sense at all. And uh, so you can imagine apathy and materialism and all these things mm. uh, came in. And we, we see it today as well. We, we can see the result of what was once a great Christian consensus in Western countries. Uh, and it's become so rotten to the place where Christians can now be persecuted uh, by secular humanists who've hijacked societies that Christians built up. Just take the universities. Just about every university was built up as Christian institutions. Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, I mean, you can think Princeton. They all start as Christian universities. But now... To be a Christian there, you, you're you going to be hard done by and you probably couldn't remain a professor in a place like that if you mm. maintained a steadfast Christian witness. Mm. So bring us up to speed with, we want to talk a bit about the Crusades, but we're talking about the 700s here, the Battle of Tours, and sort of the expansion of Islam after the time of Muhammad. Uh, what led to the Crusades? Sort of what was the preamble or the background that sort of led to the well, Crusades taking place. Of course, if you just take the common narrative today, the Crusades were the most evil, unprovoked, uh, for no good reason, uh, evil colonials who uh, rampage into Muslim countries and start stealing the countries away from these poor, innocent Muslims who are minding their own business, and uh, brutal, atrocious uh, war crimes committed by greedy, expansionist Westerners. I mean, mm. that's the kind of narrative today, but of course the reality is pretty different. So the Crusades at the time were seen as a reaction to centuries, five centuries of Islamic jihad and aggression and expansion. And here, Christianity went on the offensive. And they went on the offensive specifically to regain territories that had been historically Christian, which had been taken over by the Muslims. And because of the cries from Christians from the eastern part of, of the Mediterranean, mm. who were had been under the Byzantine Empire, crying out to the Western Christians, come and help us. Mm. You know, we are being devastated, even the Church of the Sepulchre has been devastated, uh, churches are being desecrated, uh, the most holy shrines in Christianity, uh, which pilgrims have been visiting, are no longer able to be visited, in fact, are being demolished and desecrated uh, by infidels. And so uh, in Europe, there was this great cry uh, to help defend our Eastern brethren, our Orthodox mm. brethren, the Christians in the East, who in the lands where Christ and the apostles had ministered is now being trampled underfoot by those who despise the faith and are persecuting Christians. And mm. Of course, many pilgrims from Europe had been traveling there and now would have come back with horrible stories of how they'd been abused and beaten mm. and stolen yeah. from and so on. And so uh, in Europe, the Crusades were not seen as aggressive. They were seen as defensive and they were not seen as expansionist. They were seen as going to help the Eastern Christians regain what was theirs and then mm. come back home. So there's no idea of establishing colonies in, in the Middle East. Mm. So anyone who wants to inject 19th century colonialism or imperialism into the 11th, 12th, 13th century crusades are, are anachronistic. It's, it's that, mm. That's not the view at all. And so if you take uh, people who've studied the crusades well, uh, like uh, Jonathan Riley Smith uh, in Oxford uh, University, who's probably the world's greatest authority on the crusades, he says, you know, all, all this kingdom of heaven, Hollywood version of it is so divorced from reality um, that it's, it's, it's worthless. In fact, it gives the exact opposite of what, what was the case. Mm. And there never was an attempt by the crusaders to to win converts by the Crusades. The Crusades were not a missionary evangelistic enterprise. They weren't trying to force Muslims to change their religion. This wasn't like jihad. It mm. was the exact opposite. What they were seeking to do is to defeat the jihadists who were threatening Europe and to help their brethren in the East who were uh, being suppressed, in many cases being treated like slaves uh, by these invaders, and to give back these lands to those who uh, had... Uh, 
controlled them for centuries. So it was seen as defensive. So uh, if it hadn't been for the sacrifice and the courageous achievements of the Crusaders and seizing the initiative, throwing back the jihadist invaders onto the defensive, the Christian world would have doubtless fall to Islam. I mean, it was a critical time. So when you're talking about the 11th century, uh, the Crusades actually united and divided Europe and it threw the Muslim aggressors back and it brought a peace and a security to Europe it hadn't known for centuries. And as a result of tremendous sacrifice of the Crusaders, Christian nations experienced spiritual revival and biblical reformation and it inspired a great resurgence of learning and scientific experiments and technological advances and movements that led to greater prosperity and freedoms than had ever been known before in history. And so Christian crusades like Godfrey of Beyond and Richard the Lionhearted, who against such great odds threw back Muslim Turks and secured Christian lands for the encroachment of Muslim aggressors, they were seen as heroes for centuries. And it's only in the latter part of the 20th century and early part of 21st that suddenly crusaders become a swear word and a term mm. of derision, something negative and a propaganda type of term uh, that uh, Muslim jihadists throw out. But for centuries, crusaders were so respected that you had uh, Christian schools who'd call their sports team the Crusaders. You'd have hmm. evangelistic crusades. I mean, people like Billy yeah. Graham would run what they call a crusade. Um, uh, your um, uh, grandfather, uh, yeah. even, I we mean, he would hold crusades. crusades. Yeah. And then you've got <laughs> you've got campus crusade for Christ. Uh, yeah. Of course, those terms wouldn't be used much today because it's become politically incorrect. But for many years, of centuries, crusaders were epitome of duty, honor, honor. Um, mm. Uh, chivalry and uh, and all that was good and right and honourable and sacrificial, mm. uh, but the way they've now been painted as uh, you know uniformly um, evil people, you know, just out for for money. Well, uh, realistically, as it's pointed out by Jonathan, Professor Jonathan Riley Smith of Oxford University, he says the Crusades uh, bankrupted families. Mm. Uh, many people had to sell their entire inheritance. Uh, in order to finance their uh, travels to the... And being a, a knight was super expensive. You need more than one horse. You need mm. a couple of, of good horses because, you know, some died on the way or in the battle and, and they they needed a whole a huge amount of logistics. And there was no government support. This, this was funded by families. In fact, the Crusades were a, a group of interlocking families where phenomenal sacrifice were made. And we know a lot of this because of how much was sold. Land, property, vast amounts were sold to. No crusader could have possibly recompensed the costs of, of going on the crusades uh, with whatever they could have brought back, whatever mm. souvenirs they could. And bear in mind that 90% of the crusaders were foot soldiers. 10% were knights who could ride. Uh, but even then, even then, if you've ridden on horseback, several thousand kilometers. It's not very comfortable and you're going to some of the most inhospitable terrain on earth, the Middle East, across deserts and all the rest of it. Uh, your biggest concerns are going to be water, food, mm. survival, things like that. And uh, the idea that somehow or another the Crusades were uh, some greedy venture where people went over there to enrich themselves, virtually every Crusade impoverished themselves and also the vast majority of Crusaders never returned home. Most mm. died en route by diseases on the way back or in battle or of wounds received or of diseases contracts. So uh, modern concepts of the Crusades is completely and utterly uh, mm. false. They've, they've missed the whole uh, picture of what it was. But the Crusades did achieve a lot. Mm. And they bought more than two centuries for Europe. And they liberated areas in, in the Middle East which were able to be Christian sanctuaries. And uh, they, they birthed phenomenal movements uh, and even if you think of somebody as uh, evangelistic as 
uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who went and preached the gospel to the Sultan of Egypt. Hmm. And uh, Raymond Lull, a missionary to the Muslims, who also grew up at that time, he said, he, of course, opposed the Crusades. He said, we should be sending missionaries to the Middle East. We shouldn't be sending crusaders. And so you, you, had, you had your other groups saying, look, we've got to be more evangelistic. Um, but many people saw we've got to do something about this threat. Well, I think Raymond Lull and Francis Assisi had the right approach. I think they had the best approach. Mm. But I don't want to judge the crusaders by our standards of today when it's actually easier to travel those areas and to evangelize and minister. Uh, but they did what they understood to be the best at that situation, facing what they were facing. And it was a military threat. But, of course, primarily it was a spiritual challenge. Mm. And so the big picture is that Europe needs to engage the Muslim world in evangelism and discipleship more effectively as Raymond Lowell was, was pioneering. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the Crusades did achieve a lot and uh, many Muslims, highly respected people like Richard the Lionhearted, as, as really the epitome of chivalry and graciousness uh, to defeated enemies. And, and so the Crusades weren't all negative. Mm. And there was a respect earned for the Westerners, from the Muslims, who highly prized military prowess and courage in battle. So it, it wasn't all negative. And mm. uh, it's been denigrated a lot today by people in a way that wouldn't have been by either Christians or Muslims throughout the previous centuries. Mm. Yes, you really have to understand the context that led up to the crusade, that there, were, there was the expansion of Islam for hundreds of years before this, and then finally this is now a response after that. Now, of course, there was some very different theology, and we disagree with the call of the Pope at that time, who was telling people, oh, if you go to Jerusalem in a crusade, your sins will be forgiven you, and so you had lots of sort of criminals and people coming on crusades for, so it's not exactly... Indulgences that were yeah. offered... Uh, uh, forgiveness of sins and a free ticket to heaven, which, of course, there's no biblical warrant for. <laughs> exactly. No. That's right. not really a Reformation doctrine there. No, but no. you do see it helps to get the context of what was happening, what was preceding the Crusades, that this wasn't just a bunch of bloodthirsty Christians wanting to go kill Muslims. Um, so what are some other examples of battles from history that we can learn from as we look at history for a good example? Well, I think most people in America would know that in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But why 1492? What's the magic about 1492? Well, 1492 happened to be the last year of the Reconquista. So mm. the Reconquista was uh, the reconquest or the liberation, to use modern terminology, of Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, correctly speaking, from Islam. For 800 years, Muslim Moors from Morocco, mm. they were called the Moors, had conquered and ruled uh, Spain and Portugal. And it took a long series of battles, including by El Cid and other great heroes of the, of the faith, who fought bit by bit to, to liberate parts of Spain until finally, in 1492, January 1492, Granada, the last stronghold of Islam, Europe was conquered, hmm. uh, liberated, to use a Spanish term. And from that point, uh, Spain was completely free of foreign influence. And at that point, uh, Queen Isabella felt uh, secure enough to sponsor this exploration to the east for this Italian, uh, remember Christopher Columbus wasn't actually Spanish, hmm. he's Italian, uh, to launch out across the Atlantic Ocean and see if he could find a way to the east. And in fact, uh, he discovered America on the way to trying to find the, the east. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> nevertheless, um, he might have failed at his goal, but he succeeded at something far greater. Hmm. And, uh, and so just that, the Reconquista the liberation of Spain from, from 800 years of Islamic occupation uh, led to 
this exploratory sea voyage with such far-reaching consequences of the whole new world opening up for the gospel and uh, for the expansion of Christianity. Hmm. That's incredible to realize some of the context that comes there with what was happening really after the after this expansion of Islam and sort of how all this falls into place. And after the Reformation, the Spain was actually a Roman Catholic country and remained a Roman Catholic country. So. It's a bit of interesting history there. But and most people aren't aware that there actually was a Reformation in Spain. Hmm. Unfortunately, I didn't that unfortunately um, they all got martyred and murdered and mm. some fled. But but there actually was a, a Reformation movement in Spain. It just was they weren't strong enough to survive the Inquisition. Hmm. I actually didn't realize that, that there was actually a Reformation in Spain. Tell us about the Battle of Lep- is it Lepitano. Lepanto. Lepanto, sorry. Well, Lepanto, most people say, well, I don't know where Lepanto is. Well, it's close to Corinth. So just off the Greek coast, very close to Corinth, as in letters to the Corinthians. And on the 7th of October, 1571, one of the most important naval battles in history took place there. And it was between the Christian powers of Europe and the Ottoman Turkish Navy. And so Don John of Austria led the European forces and the Christian fleet 13,000 sailors, 43,000 rowers, 20,000 soldiers, mainly Spanish and German infantry, uh, Austrians uh, overwhelmingly. And the Turkish fleet was much larger, 230 galleys, 60 galliots, outnumbering the Christian forces. The Christians only had 206 uh, galleys and six galleasses. So during this furious battle, which lasted five hours, uh, Mm. the Christian forces closed in for the fight. The way they fought the navies in those days was ramming the other vessel and then <laughs> jumping onto the other vessel in hand-to-hand combat. So it's, they didn't have long-range sea weapons like we use. And these boats were powered by oars, so mostly slaves in the case of the Muslims, Christian slaves, sadly, um, uh, rowing the boats. If you think Ben-Hur, that sort of thing, mm. rowing boats with the drums going. But during this furious battle, the Spanish, German, Austrian infantry flowed onto Turkish vessels in ferocious hand-to-hand combat that overwhelmed the Turks. And it was such a decisive victory, one of the most decisive naval victories ever. 240 of the Turkish ships were sunk or captured. Turkish loss were over 30,000 dead or wounded and another 15,000 prisoners. I mean, that's a 45,000 loss, which is just about the entire fleet, by the way. Uh, But on the Christian side, they only lost 12 galleys, 9,000 men killed or wounded, but they freed 18,000 Christian prisoners who had been galley slaves for the Muslims. So they actually really gained. And uh, the head of the Ottoman commander, Ali Pasha, was was amongst the dead. So Lepanto was a crushing defeat for the Turks, who'd lost all but 50 of their, their vessels. And the Battle of Lepanto, following the Turkish defeat at the Great Siege of Malta in 1565, which is another great example of Christian courage that actually made a difference, it restricted Ottoman expansionism it saved Europe from from uh, invasion from the south. It broke the threat of Muslim dominance in the Mediterranean Sea. So Lepanto is one of the great turning points, great watersheds of history. It ended the fear of the Turks, who had threatened to overwhelm all of Europe. It stopped their advance. Church bells tolled throughout Europe. Many prayers of thanksgiving offered by millions of grateful Europeans, including throughout the Protestant world, such as by Queen Elizabeth, because they recognized this wasn't just Catholics fighting Turks. This is Christendom fighting Turks. Mm. And, and the fate of Europe was at stake. And this is even though uh, Catholics and Protestants were still at loggerheads. But mm. at this point, they recognized it. But, but this is for, for us all. And um, Otto Scott, um, great historian, uh, one of my favorite historians on this era, he observed, 
Only God could have saved so divided Europe against so determined and savage, rich and heavily armed a foe as the Turks. So after Lepanto, it's not that the Turks weren't still a menace. They were, but they weren't an unconquerable one. And so also of, of, of interest is, this is the last naval battle between rowing vessels. Uh, up hmm. to, after that, it was um, vessels under sail. Huh. But this is, you know, the Ben-Hur. Yeah, uh, you actually have rowing kind of manpower, not Battle speed, power, ramming <laughs> speed, you know, that sort of thing. Faster. Exactly. And so that's quite interesting. So actually during the Reformation, this is actually taking place around that time. You have still sort of the aftermath of Muslim expansion and the Crusades are still fighting taking place. Well, the Reformation took place continually under the threat of the Muslim Turks. Mm. There were some bizarre things that took place during that time in the 1500s. King Francis of France even made an alliance with the Turks, which was such a scandal throughout all of Europe because, you know, that was beyond the pale because, you know, Protestants might fight Catholics, but how can you make an alliance with the Turks? They're a threat to us all. Mm. So uh, it, it was understood at that stage. And bear in mind, the Turks had been such a threat to Europe. Uh, in the f- early 1500s, uh, 1526, they had actually taken Budapest and destroyed Budapest and uh, killed the king and uh, taken 200,000 Christians uh, uh, as slaves back to uh, Ottoman Empire, uh, uh, destroyed the army of 30,000, uh, killed all the prisoners. It was, yeah, I mean, this is Budapest. That's the heart of Europe. They besieged Vienna uh, in the, about the same year, 1526, and Vienna, pretty much the heart of Europe. So the Turks were a major threat uh, to all of Europe. And uh, again, if it hadn't been for the Reformation rejuvenating uh, the heart of Europe and the spiritual life of Europe, Europe would have crumbled. I mean, there wouldn't be a Europe today. Mm. We'd probably never have heard of it because it would have been snuffed out in the 16th century. So, you know, you've got to think of Battle of Tours, the Crusades, the Reconquista, uh, things like Battle of Panzer. These are, were all essential to the preserving of the continent through which God brought the Reformation and the great missionary movements that brought the gospel to us in South Africa or to people in North America or Australia for that matter. It's, you know, it mm. affects us all, uh, even if you in the Pacific Islands, in one of those places which used to be cannibalistic. Well, the missionaries who brought the gospel to them came from Europe. So if mm. this had been snuffed out, you can imagine. So those soldiers or sailors who fought in these battles, they couldn't have understood just how significant their sacrifice would be in the long term. Mm. And so these were defensive battles, and that's yes. what we're looking at. They're, Very these much. are not just expansionist battles. Definitely but not. As we're looking at sort of just war theory last week, we're, we're talking about what are the principles scripturally do we use for engaging in battle. So these are ones of defending what God has given us in that time, this Christian world, if you will. So tell us about the Spanish Armada. Is this another example of a defensive battle? Very much so. So... The Spanish Armada, which didn't take place that long after Lepanto. So, I mean, amazing when you think the Spanish Navy had been the heroes of Lepanto, but now they're the villains who threatening uh, England. Of course, it's about 17 years later, but still a uh, major battle in world history. It continues to benefit us today, the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. Philip II who had recently conquered Portugal. He was preparing to invade England with what they called the Invincible Armada, which is good propaganda, but, you know, fortunately <laughs> the words. The world had never seen such a powerful naval force. And, and uh, the English Navy was not perceived to be much of a significant obstacle to the Spanish invasion. I mean, they'd just beaten a Turkish fleet, so, you know, what's the English Navy? Which was nothing at that stage, really. 
um, nothing of significance. And so Philip looked forward to the destruction of the Protestants and the restoration of the Catholic uh, faith in England. And with English support severed, then it would be easy to crush the rebellion of those uh, irritating Protestants in what then was called the Spanish Netherlands. I don't know how many people realize, but uh, the, the Dutch were actually a colony of Spain for a very long time. Mm. And uh, that's why we've got the Orange River. It's named after the Prince of Orange who won the independence of the Netherlands from Spain. But that's another story. So churches throughout England held extraordinary prayer meetings and uh, the whole of the country was called to prayer. And there was a devastating storm which wrecked the Spanish plans and the Dutch uh, freedom fighters prevented the Duke of Palmer's invasion barges from Holland from being used because Spanish Armada was meant to prepare the way and the barges with the main Spanish army had come from the Netherlands across the channel at the narrow point to invade England, Dover and all of that. Well, uh, the Dutch really caused um, major problems for the Duke of Palmer and uh, the English then used fire ships and sent amongst Spanish galleons who were at anchor, caused massive confusion. Many Spanish ships had to cut the anchors, which caused chaos later just to get out of the way didn't always work. They were crashing into one another. And uh, so the fire ships caused tremendous havoc. And uh, then uh, what happened further was more storms decimated and broke up the great Spanish fleet. And instead of going back through the narrow channel, they decided to go over the top of the British Isles, over Scotland and Ireland, back to Spain. Well, that was a bad move uh, because they were hit by more storms all over. And the wreckage of the Spanish Armada is all over the, the coast of Scotland and Ireland and only a miserable remnant of the proud Armada ever limped back into the ports of Spain. They lost 51 ships. These are massive ships. 20,000 men lost. And the English Navy had not lost a single ship, aside wow. from the five ships that were deliberately sent mm. in for that purpose. So this was the greatest superpower of the world, Spain, suffering a crippling blow. I mean, this is when Spain controls South and Central America. I mean, it's, it's a massive empire. It controls most of Europe. And uh, the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 is another great watershed in history. It signaled the decline of Spain, the rise of England and Netherlands, and so commemorative medals were struck with the inscription, God blew, and they were scattered. Man proposes, God disposes. Mm. And uh, you can still see the coins of that in the British Museum. Before 1588, the world powers were Spain and Portugal. And these Roman Catholic empires dominate the seas and overseas possessions of Europe, as so much so that when John Calvin sent missionaries from Geneva to Brazil, they were all killed. They got to what today is Rio de Janeiro, uh, they started their work, and they were intercepted, identified, Inquisition wiped them out there. Not mm -hmm. one missionary survived, not even a year. Uh, so that was what missions was like back in the 1500s. Mm -hmm. Overseas missions was almost impossible because Spain and Portugal dominated and they were in lines with the Vatican and that was it. And so Protestant missionary had next to no chance of survival and they, they tried, uh, but uh, that's what was happening. So only after the defeat of the Spanish Armada did the possibility of Protestant missionaries crossing the sea successfully arise. And as the Dutch and British grew in military, naval strength, they could challenge the Catholic dominance sea and therefore of the new continents. And in foreign missions to places like South Africa, Australia, North yeah. America, became a distinct possibility. Had the Armada succeeded, recent history would be unrecognizable. Because in the 16th century, Spain led the Catholic cause in England, the Protestant. So all of Europe feared Spain, which had defeated all its adversaries, even the Turks. The Catholic nations of Europe had every expectation that Spain would succeed in crushing the Protestant faith by conquering England and Holland, 
And when the Armada failed, the mystique of Spanish invincibility evaporated, and with the defeats of the Catholic Spain, the Vatican course floundered, and so North America, South Africa were then firmly established as Protestant nations, as was New Zealand, Australia, Canada. So um, the ripple effect of the Spanish Armada is huge, especially from our perspective, mm. considering we're overseas from Europe, and if, uh, if Europe had fallen to the Catholic cause then, where would the Protestant faith have come from that uh, has established the countries that we today uh, call home? Mm. So this, maybe just to explain a bit more, that how is it that this was so this was a turning point for basically allowing freedom for protestants to go forward was it because basically the spanish would have come and taken over and there wouldn't have been the freedom then for the reformation to continue to flourish or how exactly yes. well you couldn't have gone across the oceans uh, okay. protestants might have been confined to north northern europe northwest okay. europe but uh, at this stage remember the catholics dominated south and central america and africa for example Portuguese taking Mozambique and Goal and so on. I mean, effectively, the whole of Africa was their, their playground and the whole of South America was the Spanish playground. And uh, it, it was just, in fact, the reason why you got Brazil, where you have and the Spanish areas elsewhere, is because the Pope drew a line from top to bottom, uh, um, a line of uh, latitude, uh, longitude, and he said, everything to the west of that can belong to Spain, everything to the east of that belongs to Portugal. And, well, it just hmm. happened that South America had this area jutting out that today they're called Brazil. And so Portugal was able to say, ah, that's, <laughs> we can slay that part because that juts into our territory. Okay. And, of course, the Spanish weren't allowed into Africa because hmm. um, that was the Portuguese territory. So um, this, was, this was how confident they were at that stage. You know, We could divide the whole world between Portugal and Spain, both Catholic countries. Wow. And, of course, that was backed up with naval power. Without hmm. naval power, that didn't mean much. And only when the English... And the Dutch could have better navies than the Spanish and Portuguese did. It actually become possible that you could have a Protestant North America, a Protestant South Africa, and so on. Hmm. This is quite a tumultuous time in church history, too, because you have fighting from without, so sort of the Islamic threat, but also fighting within. You have the Protestants and now the Roman Catholics fighting, and now there's these battles waging war. So it's a quite a hectic time, I guess, to live in church history. Uh, but it's quite amazing how you had mentioned it was actually, well, the churches had prayer meetings that God actually mm -hmm. responded and uh, answered prayer for these people. So tell us about um, Gustav Adolphus. Right. So, I mean, there are some commanders in history who are examples of excellence that we can learn from. Yeah. And Gustavus Adolphus, if people haven't heard of him, uh, he was uh, the king of Sweden uh, back um, in the 1600s. And he rallied the Swedish army to to support the Protestant Germans who were being annihilated in what later became called the Thirty Years' War. Uh, the Catholic Austrians had, were waging a genocidal war against the Protestants in uh, the north of Germany, and Gustav Adolphus from uh, across the, Bal the Baltic Sea in Sweden, he had a small country, I mean, only a million people uh, in total in Sweden, but he turned Spain into, uh, he turned Sweden into a real superpower militarily. They beat the Russians, they beat the Danes, they beat the Poles, uh, and uh, they came down and they beat the Austrians too, uh, which uh, by very innovative military technology uh, and tactics. So uh, to such an extent that many top military leaders, such as Napoleon Bonaparte, described mm. Gustav Adolphus as one of the three greatest military leaders of all time, along with Alexander the Great. Uh, wow. For example, and uh, Frederick the Great. So that's that's according to Napoleon. I mean, he looked at Gustav Adolphus and uh, uh, at that level of uh, 
Frederick the Great and Alexander the Great. And so uh, Gustav Adolf, he innovated so many uh, um, uh, weapons and tactics that uh, he's been called the father of modern armies. And uh, in fact, Oliver Cromwell of England modeled his new model army very much on what the Swedes were doing under Gustav Adolphus. And uh, therefore the new model army of, of, of Britain, which was the first professional army in the English-speaking world, where they didn't get everything by looting. And mm. uh, everything was your professional army, you, 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 paid, you get your pay. And if you need anything from the local inhabitants, it must be paid for. It, uh, mm. There's got to be fair compensation, which was unfortunately unprecedented by armies before that. Armies were expected to live off the land, which meant to basically steal from the poor people who happened to be in their pathway. And uh, that was stopped by Gustav Adolphus and that was stopped by Oliver Cromwell. And they initiated a whole lot of modern innovations, including the efficiency of, of their, their, um, uh, how they operated. And what was also phenomenal is how uh, Oliver Cromwell and Gustav Adolphus started to bring in religious toleration, which helped stabilize the fragile country and to stop this incessant warfare so that you could be tolerant of people uh, even the ones you've just defeat, defeat in battle because you can't continue to have this cycle of, of you know, they persecute us, are we going to persecute them? Or mm. They banned us, so we'll ban them. You can't do that. You've got to have mm. a religious toleration. So uh, these were commanders who who were way ahead of their time, not only in, in military tactics and strategy, but also in terms of advocating for religious toleration. And so we look at Gustav Adolphus and Oliver Cromwell and we think about sort of the biblical issues, what are issues that are worth fighting for, and um, maybe explain to us, unpack that a little bit, how these battles and these military leaders sort of reveal to us what are the, what are the issues we really should be fighting for as Christians. Well, I would summarize this, we should be willing to fight for our family, for our faith, for our freedom, and for our future. Hmm. Family, faith, freedom, future. I mean, if you think of those, those are things that are worth fighting for. And it's got to be defensive. You cannot take from others what you want to protect for yourself. So if you want to fight, it's got to be not just for my freedom, but freedom for others too. And uh, we cannot lower ourselves to the level of the other side. We cannot uh, justify atrocities or mistreating of civilians mm. or captured, surrendered prisoners. Uh, in fact, uh, for example, you, you take um, uh, one of the uh, great pilots of Second World War and uh, read his, his book, uh, A Higher Call, and um, uh, Franz Steigler, he, he, he's a, a tremendous example. Just before Christmas, he came across a, a B-17 bomber, four-engine bomber, and it had been shot up and it had been part of the uh, bombing of Bremen. And uh, he had uh, murder in his heart because, you know, he had seen the devastation. of. He'd been fighting in North Africa and Africa Corps. And he is a fighter pilot, Messerschmitt fighter pilot. And he was about to get the coveted uh, Blue Max, the, uh, uh, the Knight's Cross, for, um, for having um, uh, reached uh, the required number of, of kills, which I think was 40. And he was, you know, he just had to shoot down one bomber and he got this and he comes across this bomber and he sees, wait a minute, why is the rear gun not shooting at me? And he approaches a bit closer and sees the rear gun is dead hmm. and uh, his blood splat all over and he goes with further and, you know, so much of this wing and the rudder is shot away and uh, he can see people inside, so much of the side's been shot away, being patched up the side gunners and he, he goes all the way along and he sees the the pilot and co-pilot and looks and he's right 
you know, close to them. And when they look over their shoulder, they see <laughs> they, they horrify. In fact, this whole book's been written from uh, Charlie Brown, that's the actual name of the American pilot, who's mm. is, is a, a farmer um, from the Midwest, and, uh, and Franz Steigler, and they lock eyes, and uh, next thing, uh, Franz Steigler guides him, and he decides his mission is not to shoot out this bomber, but to take this guy back over the North Sea so he can find his way back to England. So he, he guides this, this bomber out, uh, and he, he takes a position of leadership uh, so that the air batteries at uh, on the coast uh, won't shoot it down because, you know, Germany also had captured uh, aircraft and things that might have another mission. So he's escorting this, and he escorts it out. It's so low, could have been shot down the sky easily, and uh, takes a North Sea, and then he, he puts in the right direction because their instrument panels were shot to pieces, guides them back and then salutes and turns back to Germany. Mm. And this... And they both survived the war and they become friends later. And he wow. said, his commander said to him, you, you never shoot an enemy uh, who is down or in a parachute and so on like that. He says, if you do something so unchivalrous that, you know, I'll shoot you myself. That's his commander told him. <laughs> and he, he said, you don't keep these rules of war for the enemy. You keep it for yourself. You cannot reach a stage where you can't look at yourself in the mirror and where you, uh, and you will never forgive yourself if you lower yourself to the stage of, and so he knew when he had, mm. he had defeated enemy. I mean, he could have shot that plane down. They were bombers, but, but the fact is they were helpless. And he looked at it; they were as helpless as if they were uh, wounded uh, in front of him or in a parachute. So, mm. he now, you get this this kind of chivalry on all sides in many wars, at least where Christians are. And uh, there's, I mean, my father has respect for North, uh, for his North African enemies, and in uh, the Africa Corps, he was an Eighth Army, was immense. And there was so much acts of of chivalry and kindness and compassion to one another at different times. And uh, I think it's so important that we need this as Christians. So we've got to realize what are we fighting for? We don't hate those who are in front of us. We love those who are behind us. We are trying to fight for our family, for our faith, and for our future. We're trying to fight uh, for. For freedom, we are not wanting to oppress others. And so I think there's examples. And I mean, you can think of some like uh, in American history, the War of Independence, Ben Commando, Majuba in South Africa. You know, at the Battle of Majuba, after defeating the English at the Battle of Majuba in, in um, 1881, uh, they uh, were kind and compassionate to people. And this mm. one officer uh, who I think it was Lieutenant Hamilton, he later became General Hamilton at the Gallipoli campaign, the First World War. He handed a sword over, and um, General Joubert looked at the sword, and he said, this is a sword that's been awarded for gallantry. It's, it's special inscriptions. On. He said, such a sword should not be taken from the one who's earned it, and he handed it back to him. And uh, uh, there was this gallantry and respect for mm. one's enemies. Now, as Christians, we must never forget what we're fighting for, and we must never lower ourselves to the point of hating the people that we are at that moment opposing, because those people might become our friends and allies in the future too, mm. with God's grace and mercy. And there's so much today in the world, I think you've completely lost this sort of, not completely, but mostly lost this honor in warfare. I mean, when you have battles in the Middle East and there are children with heavy artillery and machine guns and I mean in other places like the Boko Haram also using mm. child soldiers and I mean there's just such it's not even I mean the, the ethical issues are so complex uh, that it becomes I mean where is the honor anymore in this and how many commanders do you think actually tell their people don't hate the person in front of you but we fight for the love of the people behind us so mm. I mean I think how do we sort of wrestle with these things and as we 
face sort of our situations today because you, I think we've lost a lot of this honor we, in battle. We have. So this is why chaplains are so important. And it's so vital that the chaplains have authority. And they must not see themselves as a cheerleader for the army or some kind of propagandist to whip up mm. their emotions. That, and there's other people who do that stuff. Um, the chaplain must be bringing an ethical core. And um, I, I remember, for example, in South African army, chaplain always had the highest rank in any unit. And uh, so he automatically outranked. And uh, the, the unit uh, insignia was uh, a triangle, and it, it had the high row of crystals hmm. on there. So, uh, you know, Nissan Conquer. And uh, so there was this one time up at uh, Kalawek, I think just north of Ruakana, there'd been an unexpected Cuban artillery barrage, which had killed a large number of our men, 11, maybe 12 or 13. I forget the amount, but it was a, it, it was a shock to... To the South Africans to have lost so many men, one bombardment that just like a lucky bombardment from the Cuban side, and so there was this real anger. We're going to resentment. We're going to get them back, and so they were wanting a full artillery barrage on this town of Kalawek. And the chaplain said, "Are there any civilians in town?" And the command said, "I don't think so." Well, it said, "Well, that's not good enough. Uh, you you can't do an artillery barrage on a town if if there's a possibility of some civilians there." So he said. You have to send an aircraft, and it's got to be no bombs, rockets only, and visual identification of targets. And there was anger. Everybody in the room was basically angry at the chaplain because he, mm. he interfered with the plan. And uh, they, they, of course, obeyed. And when they came back, some of them went and apologized to the chaplain and said, thank you. We would have been – thank you for keeping us from doing something we would have regretted later because, mm. because there was this vengeance and they weren't thinking clearly – and this, this, the chaplain did what he was meant to do, which mm. is inject some ethical standards. You yeah. can't just think from a military point of view. You've also got to think you're doing this in the sight of God and you'll have yeah. to count to him one day. Yeah. And they're almost like a prophetic voice. If there are chaplains listening to this and or you know chaplains, it should be sort of like the prophets of old. What are you doing? Go back to the law. What does the law say? Repent. And even in the warfare, are you doing it in a way that honors God? So in our last couple of minutes, Dr. Hammond, would you like to just discuss some basic issues that we should think about as we consider warfare? Yes, I, I think it's so important to know what you're fighting for. It's it's never good enough to just be fighting against because trouble is the first casualty in war is truth. And there's a lot of propaganda which seeks to demonize the enemy. And, uh, and unfortunately, not just demonize the enemy leader, but demonize all the enemy, including individual soldiers mm. and the enemy civilians. And uh, if you listen to the propaganda, you can be whipped up into hating people. For, and no story only has one side. And there's always more to it than that. And anyway, it's not acceptable to ever target civilians or to ever um, be in a brutal towards captured, defeated enemy and so on. So one needs the, the, the principles of a just war that Augustine put on. There's got to be a just cause. There's got to be just conduct in war. And it must be a just peace. Uh, and if the benefits of this don't outweigh the costs and potential costs, then don't even start because it's not worth it. And if we went along the principles of a just war, St. Augustine lined out, and which Christians for more than 15 centuries have generally accepted as, as a guideline, uh, we are going to cause, we're going to take ourselves into being the the aggressor and no longer the victim or the defender, but we are going to now be committing counter-atrocities against the other side. And that's never acceptable. We've got to stop the cycle of violence and of hate. And this means the Christian can't go into warfare with a sense of hate. There's got to be a sense of duty, honor, chivalry. Uh, we're going to protect, we're going there to save lives, we're going there to, to uh, 
protect what is good and uh, stop what is evil, uh, but we'll use enough force to stop it, but we're not going to use more. And uh, so all of that requires a Christian worldview and a Christian compassion, and that involves praying for the other side. So uh, I think there's so much that we need to learn from this. We need to go through the scriptures like last year we were, uh, last week we were, yeah. it seems a long time ago, <laughs> last week we were looking at some of the, the scriptures that deal with war and those principles and, of course, what St. Augustine taught. And uh, these have been crystallized in the Hague Rules of Warfare, the Geneva Conventions, and there's a lot of good principles if we would stick to them. Hmm. And uh, unfortunately, if you if you listen to the evening news and the propagandists of today and the politicians who are often super reckless, and many of these politicians have never served in an army and never been in a conflict zone and don't know what it's like with the amount of what they call collateral damage. But collateral damage is civilians. Mm, people uh, dying. Men and women and old and young and grandparents and children and grandchildren. It's it's wicked the way some politicians just speak with, oh, we're going to rain destruction. We're going to turn their cities into ash and radioactive waste. Do they know what they are talking about? Do they have any understanding of the uh, consequences? Have they even considered the alternatives? There are often alternatives. Think about from the other side. What do they want? I mean, just think of how uh, Donald Trump, for example, back in uh, uh, 2016, as he got the presidency, he put out a message even before he became president to Sudan saying, I know what you want. You want to be taken off the terrorist watch list and you want to trade. Well, I'll tell you what I want. No more bombing, no more targeted civilians, no more war in Darfur, in Blue Nile, or in Nuba Mountains. And when you've had a ceasefire for a year, we'll open trade and all that. And the Syrian government did that with far-reaching consequences, which led to all kinds of ministry and missionary opportunities and opening of schools. Now, that was just a much better way of dealing with things. Instead of sending some more cruise missiles over into another country, uh, give them a deal. Here's a carrot, here's a stick. You know, <laughs> Which will he take? Uh, uh, you know, as uh, President Teddy Roosevelt said, walk softly, carry a big stick. And um, I think that there's many times you can solve a problem by just wise negotiations. Now, it's got to be backed up with, with real military hard power, mm. such as Switzerland, armed neutrality. We will defend our borders. Don't threaten us and we won't threaten you. You know, And Switzerland's serious about their neutrality and they're serious about their national defense. If, they want, if you want peace, prepare for war. And Switzerland's done it, and it works. And I think it's a good model for many others that we can have peace with other countries, understand what they want, push aside the unrealistic, irrational, and extreme things, uh, give a counterproposal for what's rational, mm. and come up with a conclusion that both sides want. I mean, like that to the Sudan government. You want trade, and you want to be yeah. taken off terrorist <laughs> watchlists? Well, we want no offensive actions in these areas. And... Some another they saw it to such an extent that Sudan stopped the war, started making movements towards civilian control, started planning for democratic elections, even uh, abolished things like flogging and beheading and amputations and uh, executing people for converting to Christianity. So uh, a lot of good things came out of just a rational, which was a lot better than what had been done in the Clinton era of you know sending missiles into Sudan. Mm. That didn't particularly help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but a, a serious threat and promise. Carrot stick approach and, you know, out of the deal, it obviously worked. Mm. And as we think about the war in Ukraine with Russia, I think many people aren't thinking very carefully about this. There's very much 
even a hatred for Russia rather than, no, we don't hate our enemies. We love what's, what's being defended. And I think it's really important that we think about that. Do we love our enemies? Are we, as Christians, responding to these world issues, are we peacemakers? Are we sort of giving into the main narrative? No, 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 ah, Russia's the worst and let's hate it. Even if all the things are true, we should still have a love for our enemies and be praying for them. And, and there should be a charity for our enemies even so. Any final thoughts as we close? Yes, so uh, of course some good things have been written on on uh, Christian warfare and how we can deal with it and when is it right to fight. And I've written The Christian at War, which is also available in uh, German and Spanish and in Afrikaans. Uh, the Christian at War, there, uh, there's also More Than a Conqueror, written by General Scheimulder, uh, giving personal testimonies on, on experience in warfare such as the Angola War. And... We're close to completing my book, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, in time for the 40th anniversary of our the launch of our mission, 40th anniversary of our first cross-border mission into communist Mozambique, which happened in April in 1982. And so Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ is over 440 pages covering a whole host of wars. Well, I've been involved in eight wars and uh, ministered in 38 countries and this over uh, uh, it, it looks at a whole lot of very intriguing episodes in that 40 years, which I think will be a blessing and a challenge to folks. And just even the experience of my own father, who experienced Christmas truce in North Africa, where the 8th Army in Africa Corps sang Christmas carols to one another mm-hmm. and swapped ration packs and showed pictures of their families wow. and, and came over and played soccer. And uh, the, the, just the compassion, the medical help for one another uh, uh, after battles and that even in that North African theater, you could have Christian gentlemen uh, expressing compassion even for the enemy in that situation. As, as my father said, uh, he often felt closer to the enemy on the other side than he did to the people back home who'd sent him there. He said they were fighting the same sandstorms, the same uh, blisters and heat and sunburn and thirst and all the different things, dysentery that that, Mm. uh, the 8th Army were. And he said, we knew that the Africa Corps understood. Mm. We knew the people back home didn't. And uh, that they could actually get the place where they were uh, uh, making better friends with them. I remember when my... My father and my grandfather met, and grandfather had been in Africa Corps, my dad had been in the 8th Army, and I was afraid, what's going to happen? You know, dad and granddad fought one another in war, and I, we were sort of <laughs> wondering if there's going to be a war in the living room, and, and they embraced, and the, there was this camaraderie, and my brother and I stood back in awe, because, uh, you know, what did we understand about this? But this is the thing, there's some veterans who, they give a perspective, and when you hear these people ranting and raving on the media about, you know, turn their cities into radioactive waste, you know, assassinate, do this. And you're just thinking, those people, they don't even know what they're talking about. Mm. That's the nicest thing you can say about them. They don't understand the consequence of such incendiary talk. At this time, let's take people back to learning about warfare from the Bible and from history and discussing what's really worth uh, resolving and fighting for. But I think most conflicts can be resolved with negotiation better. Mm. Well, thank you so much for listening tonight. For those of you who would like more resources, you can visit frontlinemissionsa.org and find some of our articles on there. That's frontlinemissionsa.org. And let's have this in mind as we think about the world we're in today and engaging in warfare. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Thank you so much for listening tonight. We pray that this has helped you think more 
carefully and critically about these issues as we've examined these examples of excellence from history. Good night and God bless.